0: I am Frederick C. Harris, Dean of Social Science and Professor of Political Science at Columbia University. And here with me, it is my pleasure to introduce Charles V. Hamilton, the Wallace Sayer Professor Emeritus of Political Science and Government at Columbia University. Professor Hamilton is the author of several important books in the study of race and politics, focusing primarily on the African-American experience. He is the co-author of Black Power, A Politics of Liberation with the late Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Touré, as well as The Black Preacher in America, Bench and the Ballot, Southern Federal Judges and Black Voters, Adam Clayton Power, Jr., The Political Biography of an American Dilemma, and co-author with Donner Cooper Hamilton of The Dual Agenda, Race and the Social Welfare Policies of Civil Rights Organizations. Good afternoon, Professor Hamilton. You grew up in Oklahoma.
1: Muskogee, Oklahoma. I did not grow, I was born there. Okay. But I was bred in Southside Chicago. Okay. But I was born in the Depression. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, I was born on October 19, 1929. Ten days later, the crash hit. Oh, interesting. And from that date on, my mother said it was all downhill for me. <laughs> but that aside, now, um, and we came, part of the Okies went west. Right. Part of them went north. My part went north, and we came north to Chicago in 1935. And from that point on, you see, I say I was born there, bred in Chicago. Right, well that's interesting. So how did you develop an
0: interest in studying political science?
1: I wanted first to be a journalist. Mm -hmm. I wrote a lot poems and everything and uh, short stories and I just like to write and uh, finally I was told that um, uh, there aren't many jobs for black people who want to be journalists and, well, at any rate, uh, I decided I would then uh, go into a job, or study for a job that uh, had security and mobility, and that meant, que- uh, quote, close, quote, the civil service. Mm-hmm. So I decided, well, ah, that sounds like government. Mm-hmm. And so then I went uh, into political science, It wasn't called that then, really. Some places call it government, some places call it public administration and so forth, which is not an unimportant point for you political scientists. And so I then decided after getting a bachelor's, but always I was told, son, get your education. Get your education. They can't take that away That was like, eat, eat all your food, you know, and so forth. And so I said, okay, I got a bachelor's from Roosevelt University. Then- right here in Chicago? Yeah, in Chicago. Then my brother, older brother, said, well, why don't you go to law school? Fine. Uh, you know, I didn't know how. He said, well, you gotta go. And he and his wife uh, financed me in law school to Loyola.
0: Where did you go to law school? Loyola,
1: here in, here in the Jezzies, Jebbies. Jizz, right. Okay, well, that was about enough, you know, mm-hmm. law school. Well, then I taught for a while in, in um, the South. Got fired from Tuskegee for for reasons um, um, frequently discussed. And parenthetically, 30 years later, to their credit, they gave me an honorary degree. (laughs) With that aside. Could you say briefly,
0: what was the issue around your firing? I was too radical.
1: And my FBI record said that the faculty said I was a communist. And I have my FBI records. And well, you know that 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 was part of the the saga Mm -hmm. that you may want to get into. But uh, then I decided I would come back, and if I were going to do that, my wife said, "Well, if you were going to be a professor, you ought to get a Ph.D. That's the that's the thing that." So I did. I came, uh, interestingly enough, to this university.
0: So, we're, we're at the University of Chicago. So, it seems to me you don't venture far from the south side of Chicago.
1: <laughs> I'm not a west sider, or oh. <laughs> no, that's correct. No, I, I um, as I said, I was bred here, and um, that's where I'm gonna bed down. Mm-hmm. Um, I've uh, made that decision. Right. And in fact, in this very room, I'll, I'll, I'll see it for dramatic effect. I think, you know, every time they give you a Ph.D., a faculty, they haven't done it for you. Right. And I'm convinced it was in this room. It probably was not because this was a faculty club. But it's nice coming back. Any anyway, rate, so then I went on and did things, got involved, in the civil rights movement in the South.
0: But before we go there, I'd like to know what was your experience in, in your doctoral training here? Were there any professors that influenced your work?
1: Quite a few, but uh, uh, there were several like Pritchett, C. Herman Pritchett, who was the constitutional Law guy. Uh, only one who admitted that I was right and he was wrong, because I was a uh, involved a little bit in the Gomillion v. Lightfoot case, the gerrymandering case in Tuskegee. And I was a law student, I mean a graduate student here when that decision came down in 62. And we were at his house around the corner up the street here, and we were politely, as uh, graduate students and faculty would, discussing the likelihood that the court would rule in favor of
0: mm-hmm.
1: not Gomillion, mm-hmm. because they said it's a political question. And I said, no, 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 it's race. It is race. He said, well, they don't touch those issues. Well, look at me. I was right. Mm-hmm. The next time he admitted mm-hmm. in a class, I learned from my student And I just puffed up, I still didn't have a PhD (laughs) yet. But no, he was a great man and he was very, very, how should I say, he uh, believed that the law, well, he taught us a lot, he taught me a lot. Mm-hmm. And that, that influenced the heck out of me. So I said, well, if i finish finished this PhD with my law degree, I'm gonna combine the two and I'm gonna become an academic activist. Because I never wanted to be just a professor. That, that was, no, 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 no. That, no, that was not it. Uh, I wanted to, turned my academic life into an activist one. Right. And I got fired for, co- for a lot of times, I got, you know, well, it's no problem. It was a problem, but that was the origin, if you want to say. And from then on, it was all, if I didn't combine my activism with it, my teaching, it was, I didn't care about that. I really didn't, I didn't want to be a professor or a lawyer simply to be that. I wanted to act, and so it got me in trouble a lot, uh, you know. Unless <sighs> that <laughs> phone tapped and all that sort of business. Uh, but and indeed, uh, there were. I remember when I got fired, and I'll stop. Uh, I got fired from Tuskegee and I wrote home and told my mother and brother and they said, oh, well, gee, son, my mother said, can't you come home and get on at the PO? <laughs> That's a true story. <laughs> yes. the, the answer is, I did. Every time I got fired, uh, got into trouble, mm-hmm. I'd go to the PO. That's the post office, post office to you, yes. until your viewers. Uh, yeah.
0: Many of us have uh, also gotten the same advice from family. By the way. Oh
1: yes, or similar <laughs> locations. Yes. Right,
0: or, or or a good government job. Right. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but before we, we go there, you, you, that's an interesting story. Um, but I want to I do want to ask. Um, given your years of path-breaking research on the political conditions of African Americans, um, it led you to become one of the founding scholars in the in the subfield of race in American politics. Um, and so today, um, the field, you may not know this, is called REP.
1: No, I don't, but I read that in, a, in your note to me and I liked it. Right. R-E-P. Now. Yes, rep.
0: Um, there's a whole section in the American Political Science Association dedicated to the study of race, ethnicity, and politics. But why, and you've mentioned this a bit, why um, was race or has race been so central, the study of race has been so central to your scholarship?
1: Because I thought it was always um, a factor in everything government did that I understood in American society. Um, Obviously, slavery, the reconstruction, that history. Now, I thought, well, government then cannot be understood in America without understanding the role race played and that literature in history is voluminous and it's um, in sociology the sociology people the uh, history people preceded us as I'm saying us because uh, word is you're a political scientist and I know a very good one well we were latecomers And a lot of our studies winked at the role race. Race was always a sub-subject. A, uh, how should I say, a, um, well, sure, but. Progress, yes, but. And I think, what the heck is this all about? It's a permanent factor in government. And I, it also occurred to me that some of the major principles of your discipline and mine was that that government is best which governs least. I had just the opposite. That government is best which governs most in the lives of those who need it. Now that was the kind of. I never wrote that down, but that was what I was wanting to do show that a lot of the narratives, that's another term you youngsters uh, brought on with us, and it became, even today, uh, the private market sector needs limited, I mean, needs excessive uh, freedom. Limited government is good government, nonsense. So I began to say, no, race is so important that we must now elevate it to one of the standard barometers that you use to judge the validity of your society. And that's what I hope that REP stuff you're talking about now does. It's not sub. Now, with the history people, I keep saying this and think, well, and John Hope Franklin is superb on this, historian. Well, are you a uh, Negro historian? Uh, or are you, isn't that American history? I said, oh, my God, here we go. And then the historians say, well, it's a part of, No, it is America. (laughs) You don't know American history without knowing that, the race, and I say you don't know American politics without knowing the role race has played and will continue to play. And I don't apologize. See, when I came to um, uh, Columbia, I had to apologize. When I left this university, and this is not libelous, what I'm about to say, one faculty member who was not on my committee, PhD committee, said, well, Hamilton, you're a good guy, you're a good scholar, and but don't be a Negro scholar. Negro is a good term man. When you write your dissertation, write on some universal issue like the parliament, British parliamentary system. Grant McConnell told me that. I said, I want to write on the right of blacks to vote in the South. He says, well, that's what they expect you to do as a Negro. Well, and I am a Negro. <laughs> But, so that's, you know, we, I want, to, I want to rise above that. I want to legitimize the understanding of that there are ethnic and racial differences. Or then they say, well, the issue is uh, class, not race. Well, I went the Marxist route for a while, but didn't give me much, you know. There is a racial component, and it's not just in this country. Mm-hmm. It's in South Africa. Right. Well, we're
0: gonna we're gonna get to I South Africa. I thought we would. <laughs> well, let me stop. Keep but, going. But 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 before before we go there, I, I want to talk about this idea of identity politics. That identity. is, yes. Um, It's the politics of marginalized groups and it's become an emerging emerging area of study in political science. It remains a constant force, as you know, um, in the practice of American politics. Um, Your book, Black Power, The Politics of Liberation, which was published in in 1967 with the late political activist Kwame Touré, who was also known as Stokely Carmichael. (laughs) That work still informs our understanding, I I believe, in many Um, political scientists um, believe, uh, black political behavior as well as the politics of marginal groups more generally. Yes. After 50 years, it's still in print and used in college courses. In fact, I use it in my course on African American politics at Columbia. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate
1: it. How did you come to write Black Power? I was involved in, with SNCC in the South, Student Valley Court. I would go down in Lowndes County, Macon County, Greensboro, and that's what I thought I should do. And I was teaching the Lowndes County Freedom Party and all that sort of. Well, I went into the SNCC people and I knew that they, I preceded them. SNCC was formed in 60, right. 61. I was down there in the 50s with the T.C.A. and Alabama and so forth in Macon County, Tuskegee. Well, and so I became involved and it was appeared to me that this was an important movement. The only? course not. And then some of my friends said, well, now look, be careful, you're a teacher. You're not an activist. Well, I couldn't. So I became involved, I would go to their workshops, they would ask me, I've got some of my archives will show that uh, I became very involved. And so one day I, I finished a, ma- a manuscript called "The Politics of Civil Rights. Gave it to Random House, uh, they were in process. My editor there, said, do you know this fellow, young guy now, this was 1966, named uh, Stokely Carmichael and Snick. I said, yeah, sure, I'm good buddies. You think he'd be interested in writing a book for us? And I said, I'll ask him. And so they did, and Stokely came to me and said, no, um, I will co-author it with you. If you uh, you will write it together. And so we did. Now the book I finished, they gave to another guy, and he published it.
0: Hmm. Under the same title? No. Is this a riddle?
1: <laughs> no, it's a matter of archival research. Okay, okay. <laughs> my friend. Okay. Now, uh, and I, they're, they're, it's there. And so they told me that we'll put this aside now, and they gave it to another guy, mm-hmm. and. You do this book, and so in September of 66 at Lincoln University I started and Carmichael would come every month and he'd spend time, you know, he was maw around the country then, very popular, and he would tape and I would write. And he wrote four chapters, I wrote five, and I have all those tapes. And we finished it in September, we finished it in May of 67. Gave it to Random House, they said, great. They began to put it in motion. By then Carmichael was off and running and at that point, August, they were in production. Random House. Stokely, where was he? With Castro. And he was on the uh, podium with Fidel, Revolution Now, Revolution Now. Bennett Cerf, one of the publishers in Random House, said, we're not gonna publish this book. This, and the, some of the board members said, This is gonna, this is not. I was then summer teaching at UCLA. John Simon, my editor, called me and said, get out here, they're gonna kill the book. Okay, I went out overnight. We sat there, 401 Madison. I do this to prove the effect of the Story, they said, Look, we're going to kill this book if you don't say that you're not violent, for violence. That's the thing we don't want to hear. So I said, Well, this is our manuscript. They said, Call Stokely. We called him through the channels, and I said, Carmichael, then I'm going to publish the book. And then he said some good sounding words and said, I don't care. That then John Simon said, well, look, let's you and I sit down and craft a, doc, a statement, which is on the inside of the book. And people don't understand why that statement is there. And I bet you know, you'll go right back and look at it. August, ni- August, 1967. We wrote something. I called Stokely back. and He says, oh, yeah, man, go ahead. That's, I'll, sec- I'll accept that and the editor said, okay, and that was it. The book was published in October. We're selling 5,000 copies a week for about a year and a half. Right.
0: That's extraordinary. Another important scholarly legacy from your work is on the concept of deracialization. Yes, sir. Um, and you wrote an essay it's from, initially from an essay, I did do my archival work on this question, <laughs> um, in a journal called uh, First World. Yes. Um Hoyt Fuller? Yes. Hoyt Fuller. Yes, yeah, he was the previous publisher of Black World, which was published by the Johnson Publishing Company, um, publisher of Jet yeah, and Ebony, right. Right so um, I think we're showing off here I sir. think we are just a little a bit. <laughs> the concept is still debated today, a still controversial concept, uh, yes. at least in the literature and even in the practice of black politics. Um, how did you get interested in this idea of deracialization? How did it come about? Uh, okay. and, and I should say I may it was published in 1977
1: That's when the article was published. Okay. yeah but a few years prior to then, I had um, been asked by the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. the National Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. Now I remember, this was um, post Nixon, yes. and we were and race was uh, a serious well, then and now, but clearly then, and I was becoming. Um, more interested then in how can we beat up these conservatives? I'd be very candid, very you know. Mm-hmm. And again, my activism. Right. And so the one of the uh, chairpersons of the uh, Democrat, National Democratic Party asked me to draft a document that would they could use in their platform. And so I did, and it was a memo that I gave to the party, and, and I said, look, there are certain issues that can be racial specific exactly, you know? Discrimination, the list was longer than this room. Then there were issues that cut across race lines. Every, all poor people need jobs, all poor people need good help. That was a a Mm no-brainer. So I said, so let's, in our platform this year, let's de-racialize by meaning don't, I mean, emphasize these universal issues. Mm Cut out the the, uh, anti-race, no, but de-racialized issues. And there are such issues Mm -hmm. then and now, my friend. And so then I then began to, you know, and I was mouthing off on the platform around the country, let's emphasize the de-racialized issues. Well, some of my buddies, particularly my black political science buddies said, aha, Hamilton the sellout. Okay, well, I didn't like it, and I said curse words to them, not really, affectionate. But that was my, in other words, I was trying to be something I really always was, a strategist. Mm -hmm. This is a strategy, man, come on. And so uh, a lot of people for whom I then and now still have respect, uh, and I think I might have overdone it, but they quizzed me on it and they handed my head, handed my head. That was the, my concept of deracialization, a strategy, because, Fred, it was an electoral strategy. And I'll say something now that I, and you haven't even mentioned it in in your careful research, one of my other ones is, elections are from time to time, not for all time. Now, and I'll say something else that should precede this. See, you causing me to put it all together, that's wonderful. One of the major points of that Carmichael Hamilton book mm-hmm. was on page forty-four. Before a, any group can enter the open society, it must first close ranks. Now, in close the ranks, we said, "Ah, he's a separatist. Ah, he, he doesn't like white people. Uh, kick whites out of the civil rights movement." I said. Not what we mean, well, we've got to be organized. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. After that, mm-hmm. now you strategize. You come with an organized base. And if it meant compromising, then you better. If it meant deracializing on the minute, you better.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What's the problem? I'll know what the problem is. A lot of it, and I tried to talk about this before, but it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Democracy is a, uh, a very ubiquitous term. It means different things to different people at different times. And so that's what I meant then. I still mean it, but I, 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 I uh, was at fault. I didn't take my time to spell it out. Because mm-hmm. I said, look, I'm too busy. <laughs> that's what I said, that's what I meant. You know, mm-hmm. you can't do that. Right,
0: right. Well, that, that sets way into another important book you wrote. Um, um, you know, deracialization was is about a campaign strategy, but you also have had a, your work, you and your late wife, um, Donna Cooper uh, Hamilton's. Work uh, book called the dual agenda, race, and social policies of the civil rights organizations, Um, and you tried to get uh, you you looked at both universal and targeted public policies, right, as a way to challenge the persistence of racial inequality. Um, Have your thoughts changed about what sorts of policies are needed? Um, Is a dual agenda still needed?
1: Very much. And they change because times have changed. Mm -hmm. But I will say this, I piggybacked on my wife on that one. Mm -hmm. That book started from her research for her doctorate at Columbia when she talked about the history of the National Urban League, supposedly conservative and so forth. Mm -hmm. She goes back to the New Deal, and she archivally found that the consistent point of the Urban League was that Negroes need jobs, not arms. That's their that slogan: jobs, not arms; jobs, not a work, not welfare. I said, "Gee, isn't that interesting?" It's still today. Everybody needs jobs. That's a universal. We don't want welfare. So then we brought it up to uh, that period and uh, that was, uh, you need both universal and targeted today. And I'll mention it because it's very clear. I think Obama did exactly as much as he could with what he had on health care. The current administration, Trump's administration, got part of their uh, start with repeal it and replace it. Not repair and not replace. Okay, fine, fine. Now they're finding out that to repeal, to touch it even now, Kentucky and so forth, you're gonna have some problems. Why? Because there are a lot of poor white folk who voted for that boy and that's what he is. He's politically, he's a juvenile. So he's a boy and I'm not trying to be racial he is messing with a subject that crosses <laughs> race lines it is universal and i'm enjoying every bit of it so but then when he comes around and says but I'm, I'm i'm not i'm tired of being politically correct that's a racial code term meaning anti-affirmative action. Now affirmative action in South Africa is not a dirty word. In the United States it is, you see. Well, it's the language and how you use it and that's what your REP people have to come to terms with. And it's always contextual. No, I want to say this, at my last kind of, I'm not only enjoying this, but you're causing me to think this, and I am. Uh, we've got to stop apologizing. And I'm going to say it carefully and, I, and as they say, sometimes uh, in an insulting way, I'll speak slowly you got to po- stop apologizing mm-hmm. for being racially identified. Mm-hmm. You can't do that. Um, and so your R-E- REP is untargeted, my man. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it not the case also? This will be thrown at you. we have already got it. I wrote a book. You mentioned it, Adam Clayton Powell. Yes. One of the most popular and important. Adam Powell, one, people in office. Adam Powell, two, a scoundrel. Wasted it. And we should have called him out, but we didn't. We protected him. Mm-hmm. How often does that happen now? We let, we we appoint the, see, now, there are not many John Lewis's coming, see, <laughs> I often thought, and that's where I made a mistake.
0: Okay.
1: When I saw John in the SNCC and down mm-hmm. the south, I said, that's, that's that's what, for. and it was very clear to me, now get this, now I got all these degrees, that, anybody who came out of the civil rights struggle was incorruptible. Mm -hmm. There are not many John Lewis's. And so we've got to be on guard against that. The scoundrels, the uh, sycophants in our movement, we've got to clean our house. Oh, yes. And now, of course, uh, the biggest sycophant is the president, but uh, that's, we didn't do that now. See, the black people did not elect that man. But we've got to get white people now mm-hmm. to become just as politically literate and active mm-hmm. as we hope we will be.
0: We, we know that you know uh, the push for accountability is uh, is something that's always been uh, uh, an issue um, when we think about democracy and specifically when we think about Black politics. But I want to ask you this last question. Um, we talked a little bit about this. Um, what you're working on now? Um, I'm going to use the R word anyway. Is that there's a rumor? <laughs> there's a rumor. Um, that you're working on a book about racial politics in South Africa. It's called Taking
1: Democracy Seriously. Okay.
0: And it is briefly about?
1: Well, just what I've been saying, except that um, I'm giving a definition of democracy that is mine and doesn't have to be accepted anywhere else. And But I suggest, and I take... Um, um, This from Lyndon Johnson, in his statement on the Voting Rights Act. I think that a legitimate democracy has to mean the following. One, one sentence. Those people who are to be governed should have the right to choose who governs them. That means universal adult suffrage. Now, that also means don't corrupt it by gerrymandering, bribery, Mm -hmm. by uh, a whole range of things we do in our system Mm -hmm. to corrupt it, some legal, some illegal. Bribes, of course, but uh, gerrymandering. Yes. Citizens United. Now your audience is very intelligent. They, they uh, know that. That's a plutocracy. That's not a, that's not a democracy. So that's where I'm going. And I'm gonna compare the development of this In this country, which I know something about, and South Africa, when I've been there 103 times now, over since 1979, I used to go three times a year. And I'm gonna continue going, because there the dimension is very interesting. Mm -hmm. It's predominantly black and colored. And predominantly poor. It's a smaller country, which is variable. We are and what? 50 million? Mm-hmm. They are 55. And let's face it, size makes a difference. They've got 11 different languages. We've got one and a half or two. So then I just want to see how they work it out now. They are also very, very concerned about a market economy, i.e., small c capital. So are we, big C. And so, a few, can't speak in decades, can't speak in in years, but in a few days I have left, Fred, I wanna spend time just looking at that and studying. I'm not gonna be a, Scholar, I mean, I'm not going to be an activist. Okay. No, look at that, it's not my call. I'll make a lot of calls in the United States. But I, and I'm so, that's why we give scholarship money, my wife and I over there. Mm-hmm. I buy my way in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, I don't go over there expecting them to pay me.
0: Good seeing you, my man. Good seeing you. This has been extraordinary. Thank you so much. Okay. All the best to you. (laughs) You too.